This is Samuel, and I'm coming to you from the exceedingly damp city of Vancouver, British Columbia. Relatively Prime would not have been possible without the 340 truly heroic people who backed it on Kickstarter. For this episode, I would like to particularly thank Eric Vogt, Daniel Azell, Gabriel Sikaros, Will Graham, and Laura Egan, as well as my Kickstarter producers, Daniel Murphy and Edmund Harris. If you also want to help out the show, please go rate and review it on iTunes. The more of those Relatively Prime gets, the higher it will climb in the rankings, and the more people who will get exposed to wonderful mathematical stories. And for those of you who are looking to go above and beyond, you can always head over to railprime.com and click support to throw a few bucks my way. Finally, before we start the show, I want to tell you a little bit about my friends at ASC Madison and their work with the St. Baldrick's Foundation. Since this is a mathematics podcast, let's start with some numbers. Before they turn 20, about 1 in 300 boys and 1 in 333 girls will have cancer. And two-thirds of children who are treated for childhood cancer suffer long-term effects from the treatment, including loss of hearing and sight, heart disease, secondary cancers, infertility, and more. The St. Baldrick's Foundation exists to change these realities. Because kids with cancer often lose their hair during treatment, shavies for the St. Baldrick's Foundation show their support by shaving their heads and in some cases their beards voluntarily. My friends at ASC Madison have been doing shaving fundraisers for a few years. Last year alone, they raised $30,000 for St. Baldrick's. And this year, they want to do even more. Their fundraiser event will take place on March 13th at Cooper's Tavern in Madison, Wisconsin. You don't have to be in Wisconsin to take part, though. Just head over to relprime.com ASC and see how you can also help out this important cause. And now, for the second episode of the second season of Relatively Prime, your daily recommended math. Uh, do you have an example of, of some sort of everyday sort of task or, or thing that you have to do regularly that uh, mathematics can make easier? Ooh, so something you have to do. How serious do you want it to be? Oh, it doesn't have to be serious. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, yes, I've got one. It's a bit silly, but we'll give it a go if you want. One way in your everyday life you can make things a bit more straightforward using math is by choosing interesting numbers when you have to pay for something. So whenever I buy gas, I make sure that I buy a palindromic value of gas at the pump. Because you can choose. Like gas is one of those things where you can pick exactly how much you want. So I won't ever buy like, uh, you know, $53 of gas, I'll buy $53.35 of gas, right? And partly, this is great because it just amuses me immensely. But on top of that, it's really easy to then pick out uh, gas payments from your bank statements or on receipts. And so it's a nice mathematical way you can mark which purchases were for what by making them certain types of mathematical numbers. Very sadly, it only works for things where you get to choose the exact quantity yourself. For other things, I mean, you can spend a long time walking around the shops trying to get an exact prime number of uh, pennies in your total uh, checkout. Uh, but that's probably more effort. I mean, even I would say that's more effort than it's worth. Uh, and, like, would there be a, a separate thing, say, with restaurants and if you're in the United States, where you have to tip, that you could kind of use that as a security thing to make sure that uh, tips aren't being padded? You know, that's it. I exactly did that. Last time I was in the States, I went, because I was always amazed, because I'm, I'm, I grew up in Australia and I've lived in the UK and very different tipping cultures and very different etiquette around handing over your credit card or bank card. Because if I do a transaction in a restaurant at the end of a meal, the card never leaves my sight. Whereas in the US, you, you kind of you put the card in a thing and then it disappears for a while, then it comes back. Or you write your your tip on afterwards and then you leave. And you're like, well, what's to stop them from getting a biro and adding some zeros, right? And so I started adding tips which would increase the total bill to be a square number of cents, which is fine enough that you, you're never going to over or under tip too much because you've got to adjust it to hit a square number of pennies. But it is just rare enough that you know that it, if they try and change it, they're not going to accidentally hit another one, which is a square number of pennies. So you're right. You can use it in tipping as a kind of check system to make sure they don't alter your tip after the fact. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, hey, useful map. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs>
This is Relatively Prime, advice from the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. That's right, I did say advice. We're doing something different this time around. First off, I need to thank Matt Parker, author of Things to Make and Do in the Fourth Dimension, for helping us make gas pumping more fun. Actually, more implies that it was fun in the first place, which I'm not so sure about. But at least we have something to look forward to now while we stand at the pump, and that, that is definitely something. For the main bit of the show though, I have three examples of how mathematics can make your life a bit more comfortable, a bit more pleasant, and in the case of the first story, a bit more delicious. So come on mathematics, let's turn some lives up to 11. As soon as I knew that I was going to be searching out stories that would help me lead an easier, better, more efficient life through mathematics, there was one name that was at the absolute top of my list. They didn't get back to me. But second choice isn't too bad. My name's Alex Bellos, and I'm a British mathematics author, blogger, broadcaster. Do what you will, I will do it. Joking aside. Alex was not my second choice. He was my fourth. Okay, okay, he was on the top of the list. Alex was my first choice. I've known him for a few years now and interviewed him for no less than three different podcasts at this point. I've also spent many enjoyable hours reading his writing. Be it the column that he writes for The Guardian or his wonderfully titled math books, Here's Looking at Euclid and the Grapes of Math. Or if you're in the UK... Alex's Adventures in Numberland, and Alex Through the Looking Glass, respectively. Neither of which are as puntastically titled, which is odd, given that the disease of punning does seem to be a particularly British malady overall. And I always look forward to having another chance to talk to Alex. This time around, the timing of our discussion was perfect, because I had a big life event coming up, and I just knew that Alex would know how I should approach it mathematically. Alex, coming up in... 12 days, actually, it'll be long gone by the time this actually airs, but in, in 12 days, it's going to be my birthday. And so, I, I mean, it's, it's a birthday, so what I'm going to have is I'm going to have a birthday cake. And I've been hearing on the internet that you would say that the way that I, in my head I'm picturing how I'm going to cut this cake would, would be wrong. Would you tell me why I, I, I'm wrong about how I'm cutting my cake? Well, I would only say that you're cutting the cake wrong if... You don't have any friends. Now, I'm sure that's not the case. Uh, actually, actually the Alex, case. I, <laughs> I, I, I will be having a cake by myself. Well, if you have a cake by yourself, well, then it's perfect for my method. To set this up a bit, think about how you usually cut a cake. You slice it to the middle, and then you move the knife radially a bit, and you slice to the middle again. You then remove this vaguely triangular slice of cake, you plop it onto a plate, and if it's your birthday and you happen to be eating alone, you proceed to shovel it into your face while you stand above your sink. At least that's how it's been done in my experience. But it turns out, if you are eating this cake alone, and you're not shoveling it whole into your mouth while you stand above your sink, which maybe I should tell you is also not the best idea, maybe I also know that from experience, then this might not be the best way to cut your cake. This is a bad way of cutting a cake if you don't eat it all at once because the bits that are cut to the open sides go dry. So the following day when you open it up again and you try and cut it, you will have a segment that has one very dry, kind of almost getting stale side. Or if we want to phrase the problem more mathematically. You are trying to minimise the area of open cake that is present when you leave it for the following day. But no matter what people say, the universe does have limits to its cruelty. And it seems that forcing friendless birthday cake eaters to then deal with a stale cake the next day is a step too far. And so the universe has thankfully provided all of us 
with a rather simple solution. The first slice would be almost as if you're cutting it in half, and then you do a sm another cut a bit parallel to that. So you're removing an entire slice that goes from one side to the other. It's not a slice that goes from one side to the middle. So when you take that slice out, you can just push the two remaining sides of the cake together. So what happens, it becomes a smaller looking cake, but it has no open sides. Yeah, the solution is really that simple. Well, it's almost that simple. Alex was a little bit forgetful when he was walking me through the steps initially. Right, actually, I think I left something out because you can't just put it together and hope that the cake is going to stick there because it might just fall apart. So you need an elastic band. And what you do with the elastic band, the elastic band makes sure that the cake keeps together so that the two slice sides are touching and don't come apart. And then what you do is you do exactly the same thing. It's easier if you then turn the knife 90 degrees so that the second slice that you take is perpendicular to the first one. And so what you're doing there, it looks like you're cutting the two halves in half to produce four quarters. But then that slice, if you then take a parallel slice that's maybe an inch or so from it, then you get a slice that goes all the way through the cake that's an inch wide. You take that out and then put the remaining pieces together so you have something that also looks like a, a round cake. I mean, it's becoming a bit distorted, but still it's a proper cake with no open sides because all the sides are touching each other. And you need another elastic band because one of the rather fun things about this is that when you cut the cake, the elastic band goes pop and then breaks. So you need to make sure that no elastic bands remain in the slice that you're eating. To be fair to all parties involved, Alex did not come up with the solution to the eating a cake all by yourself without it going stale problem. The solution actually came from Sir Francis Galton around 100 years ago. And if you don't know Sir Francis Galton, trust me, you want to. He was really one of the revolutionary, the great kind of gentleman scientists of the Victorian era. And he was actually Charles Darwin's cousin. Notable relations aside, Sir Francis Galton had a very large impact on the world. What he did is he invented modern statistics in many ways. And he was obsessed with kind of measuring. And he was also obsessed with just this kind of mundanities of life and how we can measure and how we can improve things. He was the first kind of life hacker, so to speak. And that life hacking led him down many roads, including trying to use science to determine how to make the perfect cup of tea. He was British after all and it eventually led him to cake cutting. So he was actually quite an old man. He had this brainwave about how to cut cake, and he did what all great scientists do when they make great scientific discoveries. He sent it into a peer-reviewed journal, in this case, Nature. So... <laughs> and it was printed, and it was printed. It was like a letter to the editor of Nature, but it was printed. So you have all these, you know, the greatest sort of, inventions of the day, a very exciting time, a hundred years ago, you know, and if you look at the nature, and I went to the library to look at the nature of that day, all this like kind of fantastic, you know, new discoveries, and in it there's a letter, you know, the scientific way to cut a cake. And don't worry, I did ask the very basic question. The question every internet commenter on a story about Alex and cake cutting mentions, which is of course, why not just cover the cake? Well, you can't cover it because well, you're going to cover it in a vacuum. You know, if there's air, it's going to go, oh, it's going to go off. <sighs> Math and science people always trying to bring up what would happen in a vacuum. But he's right. If there is air, the cake will go off. I guess I should have expected that. Well, anyway, I didn't end my inquisition there. I wanted to know about non-fondant frostings, like a good American buttercream. I was worried that it would get destroyed as we pushed the cake back together, or by the rubber band. I've demonstrated this several times. I was asked to do it on a TV program in Brazil. I've done it sometimes when I go to schools to give talks. They have a cake there and they want me to demonstrate it. And it has always worked. Next time I see you, Alex, I'm going to bring a cake and I'm, I, I'm going to want a demonstration. Oh, yeah. Well, I would love to demonstrate <laughs> it. And, and if it's a nice cake, to partake in the eating. Okay, I guess he's answered all my objections. 
He's demonstrated it with a bunch of different cakes. He's told me why I can't just cover it. So I guess that leaves only one question. What if, against all odds, the best case scenario actually comes to pass? Uh, and so you've mentioned a few times, if, if you have friends with you, that this method is, is not exactly the you know pinnacle of, of cake cutting. So what happens if between like now and, and my birthday, I actually do make a friend? Well, you've got a good anecdote, don't you? <laughs> maybe you have, a, maybe you, you have a cake, your friend brings you a cake. You know, you, you can't eat two cakes between you. That would be too much. I mean, that, that sounds like the best possible uh, thing. Cause I mean, that's just more cake to eat. Yeah. Yeah, people like cake. Alex is right about that. People really do like cake. I really do like cake. Maybe now that I know how to keep cake from getting stale, eating a cake all by myself isn't the worst thing. It just means I get to eat more cake. Hmm, more cake. Hey, 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 cut the music. Cut it. What are you doing? You know that there's a lot more cake cutting still to talk about. Oh, <laughs> you're, you're hilarious. I'm eating my birthday cake all by myself, so I don't need to know anything else. You're, you're, you're a laugh, a laugh riot. You know what? I will have you know that a couple of days after I talked to Alex, the impossible happened. I made a friend. I really did. I made a friend. And it was going to be my birthday in just a couple of days. And I was so excited because this meant I didn't have to use Alex's method. I now had someone to share my cake with. But therein lies the problem. Because I still wanted all the parts of the cake that I wanted. And sure, sharing is caring and all of that. But it was going to be my birthday, and I still wanted all of the frosting that I could possibly eat. But thankfully, this is what I do for a living. So I just knew that there had to be someone out there who could help me. In two days, I'm celebrating my birthday, actually. And if I'm lucky, someone's going to come bring me a cake. But one of, the, one of the things about this cake is that when I'm sharing it with these other people, we're not all going to want exactly the same thing. I mean, for, for a small bit of information about me, I love frosting. Uh, and there's other people who barely like frosting at all. So my question to you, is there a way that we can all be happy with the slice of cake that we get? Well, it depends on what you mean by happy. And that is the type of answer you get when you call up a game theorist. Okay, my name is uh, Stephen Brams, and I'm a professor of politics at New York University. Thankfully, Stephen did have more than just questions on the nature of happiness for me. We have different criteria for fairly dividing a cake. One criterion is that you get at least 50% as you value the cake. So presumably that would include more frosting than the other person. And he may or she may have similar preferences, but at a minimum, we can guarantee that each of you gets at least 50% and generally more because you like different things. And what he's talking about there is something that is known as being envy-free. Envy-free simply means that you think you got at least as large a piece as you value things. You value the frosting more than other parts of the cake, you get at least as large a piece as anybody else gets. It turns out there's an entire area of mathematics which deals with cake cutting. Well, to be fair, it deals with more than just cake cutting. Fair division means that you have uh, criteria like envy freeness or efficiency by which you judge the uh, fairness of a uh, division. And the division need not be of a divisible good like cake or land, where you can cut it anywhere. It could be indivisible goods, like the marital property and the divorce. So we use these criteria to uh, assess whether a division, or in the case of indivisible goods, a petition, is fair. So it depends on uh, what you consider most important. If there's a trade-off, if you can't get everything, then we would ask you what criteria you consider most important, and we would try to give you 
a division that satisfies those criteria. As Stephen said, in my situation right now with my one friend, we can make sure to cut the cake in an envy-free way. But what if I make a few more friends? What if I want to throw a party with a bunch of people and have a cake? Then it becomes more difficult because then we can guarantee proportionality. So you get at least, if there are N people, you get at least one nth of the cake. But we cannot so easily guarantee envy-freeness. That means that you get at least as large and generally a larger piece than you think anybody else gets. But there are more complex algorithms that guarantee even envy-freeness. But in guaranteeing envy-freeness, everybody may suffer because you may not get an efficient solution. That is, you all could do better, for example. While he can't guarantee an efficient solution, the fact that he does have an envy-free solution for any number of people is incredible. And it's the result of something known as the Brams-Taylor procedure, work that Stephen did with Alan Taylor, a professor of mathematics at Union College. Nobody knew how to come up with an algorithm that would work for any number of people. And we were lucky enough to discover one. It definitely isn't as simple as Galton's cake cutting method. But let's be honest, being envy-free is totally cooler than just not being stale. It involves trimming, so you cut off a piece, but you can also trim a piece down, and it works in a rather complicated way, but it does guarantee you this notion of fairness based upon getting at least as large a piece as anybody else. In order to help you get a better sense of this procedure, I'm gonna give you a much, 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 much simplified two-person version. It is definitely not the full Brams-Taylor procedure, but it should help to illustrate the basic idea. So say it's my birthday, as it was a couple of days after I had my conversation with Stephen, and my one friend, she came over. Now, what's going to happen is I'm going to cut my cake into what I feel are two equal portions, given my personal preferences with regard to how awesome frosting is. Then my friend, let's call her Jen is going to look at these two pieces. And if Jen also thinks that they're of equal value, we'll just split them and we'll get to eat the cake. On the other hand, if she thinks the pieces are uneven, she's gonna trim a section from the piece that she thinks is greater until she thinks that the trimmed piece of cake and the untouched piece are of equal value. Once she's done trimming, I'm gonna think that the untouched piece is of better value as I thought that they were equal pre-trimming. And Jen? Jen's going to think that the two pieces are equal, so there's going to be no envy created by Jen getting the trimmed piece and me getting the untouched one. We'll then do the same thing with the bit that Jen trimmed off, except this time she's going to do the initial split and I will do the trimming. And then we'll keep trading the splitting and trimming until there's no pieces left. Sure, that is a lot of work, but at least when we're done, we can be guaranteed mathematically that we both like what we got at least as much as what the other person has. It's with procedures like this that Stephen says you can come up with very good fair division for things like cakes. But let's be honest, we're not going to do this for cakes. It's way too much work for cakes. But when it comes to things like dividing up land, or splitting up property in a divorce, or dealing with mergers and acquisitions, it's places like this that these procedures can really shine. I did make sure to do my due diligence as an interviewer too, and made sure that this work came from a good place. I, I have to ask, uh, did you start working on this problem because you never got the slice of cake that you wanted when you were growing up? Well, it's a good question, but I'm afraid I don't have any uh, particularly colorful answer to talk about my deprivation as a child. Well, that's good news. Colorful answer or not, I didn't really want to hear a story about a child being deprived especially not of cake. But let's bring this back to me. Because remember, this is about me getting the best possible piece of cake that I can on my birthday. So I was thinking, should I make sure that I'm inviting the right people with the right cake needs? The more different your goals are, the things you like and dislike, the more we can use these algorithms to give each of you a larger share. So what you're, what you're saying is I should really try to invite people over in a couple of days who I know like 
different parts of the cake than I do. Well, I think I think you could go by the notion that uh, you invite people who are on a diet <laughs> and, and don't want uh, the largest piece and don't care if you get it. That's you know that is the the best idea I've heard all day. Okay, good. Uh, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Bye bye. So a couple of days passed, and it was my birthday. And on my birthday, I just really couldn't decide. Did I want to use Alex's method, or did I want to use Steven's method? It was it was such a hard, hard decision. So I split the difference. I just bought two cakes. I did use Alex's method on the tastier one, though. Trust me, it was the right decision. Now that I've shared with you this secret of the two birthday cakes, you have an entirely different problem. You now need to go buy those two cakes, which means that you're going to have to find yourself a parking spot. Sure, that's not a unique problem. In fact, it's a problem that most people have to deal with every single day. Not people like me, of course. I mean, I can reach my bed from where I'm recording right now. But eventually... My next birthday is going to come around, and I'm going to need to go pick up my two birthday cakes. So I invited someone on who maybe, just maybe, will help me make that an easier task. My name is Laura McClay. I'm an associate professor of industrial and systems engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I'm also the author of the blog Punk Rock Operations Research. It was that blog, specifically an entry that she wrote entitled, What is the Optimal Way to Find a Parking Spot?, that led me to Laura. And well, you always have to start your questions somewhere. What actually constitutes a good parking spot? To some extent, that's subjective. But you know what I would say, if I'm quantifying it, is minimizing the total time kind of in the system. So that includes the time to find a parking spot and the time to walk into, you know, wherever I'm going, assuming I'm going to a store. And if you just so happen to be an operations researcher or a mathematician, you might find that you have a tendency to abstract or overthink or just plain old generalize every single thing in your life. And once you start doing that, you might find that the two times that she mentioned start to sound very similar to two times that you find when you're inside the store. Think about going into a line and, you know, you wait in line and then a checker can help check you out. And so you have these these two times in there, which is the time of waiting in line and the time in service. And that's your total time in the system. And that's very similar to the idea of parking. So you have the, the time to find a spot which is like waiting in line, and then you have the time to walking in, which is like your service time. There's already an existing area of mathematics that's all about waiting in lines, too. It's called queuing theory. And because of this equivalence between the times, you can use queuing theory to help determine what the best parking space would be, which is exactly what Richard Cassidy and John Kobsa did in their transportation science article, a probabilistic approach to evaluate strategies for selecting a parking space, which is what Laura's blog entry was based upon. They look at two general classes of uh, strategies. So one strategy is to just go into a row in a parking lot. So you can imagine a typical configuration of a parking lot, and then you can enter a store. And the store might be, think of like a grocery store that has maybe a couple of different entrances. And, you know, one way is to kind of pull into a row and just parked in the closest spot. And that might not be all that close to the store, but at least you minimize that time to find a spot. So you might have a lot of a waiting time. And then they also look at cycling, which is, well, that first row probably doesn't have such a close spot. So why don't we keep 
driving up and down rows and eventually we'll have to settle for a good enough spot. You'll probably end up closer to the store. So your walk in will be closer if you cycle, but the time to find that spot might be pretty long. These two strategies each focused on minimizing one of the two possible times. And in the end, Cassie and Kobsa didn't settle on either one of them as being the best possible choice. A, a good way to summarize it, and this is what John Kobza said, uh, told me, is that you kind of want to balance the two a little bit and be like a smart cycler. You kind of go in to the first row, and if there's a really, really great spot, take it. Otherwise, go into the second row and just take the closest spot you can find. So somewhere um, in between usually does better for that time to get to the, into the store criteria that we're looking at, so minimize total time in the system. This work was based on a mathematical model. I mean, of course it was. How else would they have possibly done it? But like all models, it makes assumptions, such as an open parking spot actually existing. And we all know that is not always the case. So I asked Laura, what does she do when she drives into a parking lot? What I usually do is I take into account some of those other things and try to kind of do a back of an envelope calculation. So there can be a lot of traffic congestion of not being able to get down a row. So you might have delays there and also a lot of stop signs with a lot of pedestrian traffic that would impede kind of that road to road travel. So a lot of times I'll settle for a farther spot, but I'm not sitting there waiting for a bunch of people to cross over in a, in a parking lot. And for those of you who started screaming a while ago that, what if I don't park in a parking lot? What if I live in a city? What if I just want to shop at, at local stores that only have storefronts? What, 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 what should I do? What should I do then? I would ask you to please take a deep breath. And trust me, I know what I'm doing. I have you covered. And, and what about, uh, say, parking outside of a parking lot? Oh, yeah. There's some really interesting research going on outside of a parking lot, especially where people have to pay for parking. There's some really interesting ideas, but they likewise draw on the idea of queuing and that these spots are, you know, it's like you always want a checker available. So you always want a, a spot available. And there's not always perfect information. So that's kind of one of the assumptions that we have here is that you We'll, we'll see these spots and find them. But if you're parking outside of a structure on streets, you can't see the next block or two over or even the next parking garage over. And it's, you know, a lot of people don't like driving in cities because the parking garages are full. So there's some different assumptions and different kind of modeling choices. Um, but the same fundamental tools of queuing theory and applied probability are useful for a variety of parking problems. So when you are, are going to park, uh, when, you're, when you're on your way to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, what strategy do you use in order to uh, make sure that you are finding an optimal parking spot? It's a really easy strategy because everybody goes to work in the morning and it's usually first available. You go into the parking garage. It rarely has anybody left yet. So there's no real advantage to cycling. I just find spots that are entirely filled up. Oh, have you have you worked at a place where, where you had to employ a different strategy? Yeah, my last university, they had a parking garage. It was kind of expensive, but you could park right outside the parking garage for free. I try to like route my paths to think about finding a spot on the street. And I actually held on to my Honda Civic for ages because it was small enough. I could get into a lot of the spots on the street that other people couldn't fit into. So it usually helped me park maybe a half a block or a block closer on average. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty neat, neat problem. But yeah, the cycling there, <clears throat> it's not just going from row to row, it's from block to block and there's street lights. So there are some real costs to finding a really great spot. There were costs beyond just the literal dollars that she mentioned, which made parking in that garage a lot less tempting. Everyone got out of work at about the same time. So there were huge queuing delays when you went to leave. And not only that, it was at a traffic light intersection, which slowed things down even more. This problem of finding the best parking spot, it's rather typical of the sorts of problems that we all run into on a daily basis. They're not simple, idealized mathematics textbook problems. They're messy real world problems that have so many different aspects, all of which need to be factored in. So I tried to take those, some of those things into account um, you just do the best you can. There's a lot of congestion, so it's not really optimal. It's just the best you can do on any given day. In the end, 
we are just talking about finding a better parking spot. And in the grand scheme of things, that's really not a huge problem. Sure, it's annoying to have to walk an extra minute sometimes, but other times, it's just nice to stretch your legs. Queuing theory, on the other hand, the mathematics underneath what we're talking about, it helps to deal with a lot of much more important problems. It's used in communications and manufacturing and computer engineering and way, way, way more difficult transportation problems than where you should park. It really is important work. It's not just for uh, silly back-of-the-envelope calculations that we do in our everyday life. There's some real societal benefits to, to these tools, too. I have to say... I'm probably not going to end up using queuing theory to find myself a parking spot anytime soon. I found a much more effective trick. Never leave your bedroom. Believe me, people, it works. Well, it works most of the time. Sometimes you do find yourself craving a few fleeting moments of interaction with other human beings. And I have one final bit of mathematical advice which will help you determine the best time to get those fleeting moments in. I wrote this paper pretty casually, and to my astonishment, it kind of it's hit a nerve. Or it's intrigued people, so happy to talk about it. Personally, I'm not the least bit surprised that the paper that my guest... I go by the name W. Brian Arthur, usually known as Brian. And I'm an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Is talking about hit a nerve. You write a paper about whether or not people should head out for a night of fun, and they're bound to pay attention. I guess you might be wanting some context here. What is the L for all bar? Okay, well, L for all is a bar in the Santa Fe or a restaurant in Santa Fe. And I used to hang out there on and off. <laughs> and back in the 1990s when Brian was living in Santa Fe, El Farol had Irish music every Thursday night. He loved to go out and take in the tunes, but the size of El Farol meant that when it was crowded, it was not fun to be there. This really got the gears in Brian's head turning. I was wondering, you know, some nights it was very crowded and some nights uh, there was hardly anybody there. And I started to wonder how people make up their minds to show up. You could probably guess this from his background in both economics and mathematics. But Brian's not the type of person who's going to stop thinking about a problem once it's in his head. I started to think in terms of formalizing the problem. Suppose a hundred people were separately and independently trying to figure out should I show up in L for all Thursday night? Um, I don't want to go if I think there's going to be more than 60 there. And I'd be very happy if there's fewer than 60 there. And if you're the type of person who has a background in both economics and mathematics, once you have this formal problem, you're probably going to try to solve it using logic. That's where this problem it's interesting. The reason the problem is a bit tricky is that they're trying to forecast what other people are trying to forecast. And the way all of this is set up gets in, into a kind of a paradox. If everybody thinks a lot of people are going to go, nobody will show up. If a lot of people think fewer are going to go, then a lot of people will show up. So the forecast tend to get negated. It's a bit like a liar problem, and this is what fascinated me. The liar problem is an old one from logic. Think about the statement, I'm lying. I could either be telling the truth, which means that I'm not a liar, which would mean that I lied when I told you that I am a liar, which would mean that I am a liar, which means I told you the truth, which means that I'm not a liar, which would mean that I lied when I told you that I am a liar, meaning... I am a liar, which means I told you the truth, which means that I'm not a liar, which would mean that I lied when I told you I'm a liar, meaning I am a liar, which would mean that I told you the truth, which means that I'm not a liar. Or I could be lying, meaning that I told you the truth, which means that 
I'm not a liar, which would mean that I lied to you when I said that I was a liar, meaning that I am a liar, which would mean that I told you the truth, meaning I'm not a liar, which would mean that I lied when I told you that I am a liar, meaning I am a liar, which means that I told you the truth, meaning I'm not a liar, which would mean that I lied when I told you that I am a liar, meaning I'm a liar, which means that I told you the truth. But that would mean that I'm not a liar, which means that I lied when I told you that I am a liar, meaning that I'm a liar, which means that I told you the truth, meaning I'm not a liar. Or in other words, paradox. So of course, this left me wondering, what's the correct strategy for figuring out if you should go to L for all? Well, it's not really a question of figuring out a strategy that you could should be using, uh, because I didn't really see it as a game. There, there are game theoretic solutions where everybody may get a, a coin that's 60% by come <laughs> up heads, and then they show up. If you think that that sounds like a silly solution, don't worry. Brian's right there with you. He doesn't think that this is the right way to approach the problem, for the simple reason that humans do not act like game-theoretic players. They're not going to seek out a biased coin to flip in order to determine if they should go out. Instead, they're going to rely a lot more on their past experiences. If the last few times you tried to go to Irish Music Thursdays at El Faral, it was way too crowded, you're probably going to stay home this Thursday. But if it's been empty for the last few weeks running, you're definitely going to continue to show up. But really, don't think too much about it. But what fascinated me was that if people start to realize that other people might realize that, then they get into these logical sequences. It's been crowded lately, so I think very few people are going to go because they'll know it's been crowded lately. So I should go. But everybody else realizes that very few people are going to show up, so they'll all want to go. Really, people, really, just stop thinking so much about it. I think that other people will think, that other people might think, that other people might think, and no matter how hard you try to resolve that, you can't get a decent resolution. Which leads us to one very simple conclusion. A conclusion which, as a mathematician, I can understand and agree with, but a conclusion that leaves me feeling vaguely unsettled and really, really wanting those biased coins back. There isn't a logical resolution to the problem. Uh, you just have to see what happens. The reason that this leaves me unsettled is that mathematicians are probably the only people in the world who do their damnedest to make sure that they're acting in the way that economists wish that everyone did. Economics sets up all its problems as very well defined and you can do deductive reasoning and you can assume people are deductive and very, very smart and turn a crank and turn out solutions from there. So we were interested, and I was certainly interested, in coming up with a problem that didn't have a deductive answer. It just led to a paradox. And the L for all the, uh, problem was such a problem. Thankfully, there is a way that people do figure out if they should go to L for all. And, even better, it has a name. Human beings do have a way to work in a case like that. They use... Uh, what's called inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning isn't super logical. It's basically saying, well, people tend to come up with hypotheses or rules of thumb or maybe behavioral things, and then they test those out. You might wonder, what do you do if you want to study inductive reasoning, a quintessentially human behavior? Well, Brian identified the clear next step. So I programmed a computer. Yeah, you heard that right. He programmed a computer. As I said, clear next step to studying a quintessentially human behavior. Maybe you don't see it like Brian did, but it worked out. So I programmed a computer to use inductive reasoning and sprinkled a lot of possible hypotheses people could have 
and uh, follow what the result was. And um, the outcome was very interesting that the attendance settled around uh, 60 people showing up. But it was a different 60 people just about every time. So it interested me because the outcome was ecological, meaning I was trying to come up with strategies at work within an ecology of created by other strategies. It was this ecological way of thinking which finally allowed Brian to crystallize his thoughts about this problem. If typically more than 60 show up in the Elferol bar over a long time, then people will get that it's crowded and forecasts saying it's going to be crowded will be valid. And so very few will go. So the ecology settles down to a 60-40, very roughly a 60-40 attendance because more than 60 people will stop going. It's too crowded. Fewer than 60 people will go. And so 60 is a kind of a emerges, we would say, in complexity science. And then Brian started to see the same sort of behavior in other places. And I realized that's the way the stock market works. And to build on top of that observation, Brian confirmed an opinion I have long held. Most of the economy doesn't have a logical solution. So that fascinated me. And that's that's really what motivated me to write that up. Okay. I'll admit to being a bit reductive there, but sometimes I just like to poke some fun at economists. Brian is saying that economic actors are working in an ecology similar to that of the people trying to decide whether or not they should go to Irish Music Thursdays at El Faral. They're trying to make the best decision for themselves with imperfect information about all the rest of the people who are also making decisions, many of which are going to affect them. And the only way that the economy can work is if we don't rely on strict logic and instead employ inductive reasoning. I wasn't done trying to get a straight answer about whether or not I should go to El Faral next Thursday, though. This time, I take the personal route. So on those Thursdays when you're in Santa Fe, what was your rule of thumb? How did you decide whether or not you were going? (laughs) That's a really good question. Uh, uh, I think my own rule of thumb is pretty simple. You know, I I would probably like nearly everybody else go on the last two or three occasions and say, "Oh, it was crowded uh, two weeks ago, and it was crowded last week." Gone. You know, I don't think I'm going to show up. It's just too crowded. And then I might wait for two or three weeks and then test the waters again and see, was it still crowded? Well, that didn't work, which is too bad, because if it had, it would apply way outside of Santa Fe. There's lots of situations that are El Farol-like. If everybody wants to buy a certain stock and thinks it's going to go up, then the stock will go up and the price will be pretty high, and in fact, it will be overvalued. So you don't want to buy that stock. It's a situation that crops up in the real world a lot. All is not lost, though. Brian did offer us this very important piece of advice, which applies way beyond just El all style problems. Intuition and getting further information uh, is sometimes superior than using just simple logic. While that doesn't actually bring us any closer to knowing whether or not we should go to El Faral for Irish music next Thursday, I'm voting yes, at least for the moment. It was a really wise piece of advice, one that I hope we can all internalize. I clearly haven't managed to yet, though, because in the end, I just couldn't help myself and had to offer my idea for a logical solution. Yeah, I, I, was, I was thinking about this. I'm like, oh, why don't you just convince one of your friends to go and just be like, uh, just and this, this is a solution that works now. Yeah. Uh, and just, just text me if it's, if it's empty enough. Yeah. I've had people 
with this problem, I've had people make a lot of suggestions. <laughs> well, we'll give everybody uh, coins to toss, uh, 60, 40 coins to toss. Well, come on, who's going to do that? <laughs> uh, or we will assume everybody's a theoretical game theorist. Or, and <laughs> come on, you know, they aren't. Or, etc. Or we'll assume people go through all this logic but that that doesn't lead anywhere, etc. So um, no, there isn't a solution that's rational, and a solution, but a solution emerges. So I'm sorry, mathematics. It's not going to help you determine if the bar will be too crowded. But, but, you will have the best possible parking spot. And all the food that you order, it will be divided in the fairest possible way. And all of that's going to happen while that awesome cake that you bought for yourself, the one that you've been waiting for the special occasion to order, will be sitting at home, definitely not getting stale. In the end, I call that a win for mathematics. Ben Seidensticker from Madison, Wisconsin, and that is all the time we have for this re episode of Relatively Prime. I would like to thank Matt Parker, Alex Bayos, Stephen Brams, Laura McClay, and W. Brian Arthur for appearing on the show. If you would like to know more about them, please go to relprime.com and check out the show notes for this episode. I also want to thank Redshirt Beats for the music that you heard. You can also find links to more music from them on relprime.com. Relatively Prime is a production of Acme Science and Samuel Hansen with support from all of his wonderful backers on Kickstarter, like me. If you would like to help support Relatively Prime, head over to the website and click on the support button. And trust me, Samuel will be very happy you did. You can also head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. That is how their algorithm decides rankings, and the higher Relp Prime is ranked, the more people will see the show. If you have any feedback or you just want to say hello to Samuel, you can send him an email at his personal email account. Really, this is his everyday email account, samuel at acmescience.com. Finally, Relatively Prime is licensed with a Creative Commons attribution share like license, so please feel free to remix Samuel's voice to say whatever you like, as long as you say that those words originally came from Relatively Prime. Thank you for listening and have a math-rific week. Thank you.